Mini episode 1214 of the FDA Cloud, which is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1214. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here, along with one of my fellow original FDH Lounge dignitaries, Chris Galloway. This is part one of our FDH Lounge preview of the NFL Draft for 2020. And what we are doing is sort of a bookend of what we did a year ago. We were reviewing a year ago the season uh, that the, the Browns had from being the hard knocks season coming off of the 0-16 campaign and uh, to, the, to the triumph of the way that the season ended and looking great going into 2019. So we're picking it up from there of being the biggest flop in the NFL relative to expectations in 2019 in some ways that I still find inexplicable. And uh, where we go from here heading into the draft, uh, the Browns, again, always a fascinating story, usually in the dumpster fire way. A year ago, it looked not to be the case. It looked to be, oh, here we go, look at me, ma, you know, but that's not how it panned out. And uh, so the, the searching, the grasping for answers continues here uh, with myself and with Chris Galloway. Chris, uh, welcome to the show once again, my friend. Uh, how you holding up during the lockdown? Oh, holding up just fine. Everybody loves a good quarantine, especially those of us, you know, like to socially distance anyway. That's right. <laughs> uh, hey, and listen, speaking of dumpster fires, you're going to get your chance with the Browns because don't forget, there's new unis coming, baby. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> well, you know. Actually, from what I can tell, I think they're actually going to Okay. Uh, I'm actually very hopeful. I'm very hopeful about what, what we've seen so far out of uh, this newest regime. Okay. And um, I think we, I think, and I'm, I'm making bold predictions because I'm the futurist in this program. Yes, you are. Chief futurist uh, of the lounge. I believe the Browns have finally turned the corner um, uh, as, as it relates to now operating like a normal, well-functioning. Uh, NFL franchise, and I'll get and I'll get into the how and the why of that as we, as we talk Browns. Okay, and I think we're probably going to start more or less there. My hope on the uniforms is essentially back to the future. Let's see kind of a classic type look relative to the great uniforms of the past of this franchise. You look at them in recent years, and it was they're like an arena league team. It was it was very low rent as far as the way it looked the last couple of years, uh, shading it to more of like a poop brown to go along with the orange. Thanks, but no thanks. Uh, let's make a classic here. Uh, you know, things like what you would see on the Comrade Dobbler channel on YouTube. Go check that out, folks. Plenty of great old Browns footage on there uh, to watch to help get you through this quarantine. So, as far as what you just said, I mean, that's what we were saying a year ago because it looked like everything was kind of turning around. You had the influx of uh, real football players, as it were, like Odell Beckham Jr., and the moves that were being made by John Dorsey to take advantage of the draft capital that had been compiled under Analytics 1.0 previously. You look at it, and 
again, I'm not sure I'm ever going to understand this. They might be doing 30 for 30s 100 years from now on Freddie Kitchens because a guy who comes in here as the product of having coached under uh, such coaches as Saban and Arians and Parcells, admittedly also Todd Haley, but we'll leave that aside, uh, who would come in here and and had all that, and was saying the right things. It was trying to tamp down the expectations. We haven't proven anything yet. We got to go out there. We got to work hard. For them to be the undisciplined mess that they were last year, I, I just I don't understand because the body language of everything leading up to the season looked to be so solid, and then to go out there and be so undisciplined to have almost every game a great game plan for the first drive, and then complete an utter shite after that point as far as making adjustments. I don't know that I'll ever fully understand what happened last year. Well, I, not being in the building, it, it's, it's hard to fully understand, but I think we have, um, I think we have hints at it. Okay. Um, I, I think it starts at the top. I think it starts with Dorsey. Um, I, I think we know who he is. Um, he is sort of uh, formerly a uh, football player, scout, uh, undisciplined meathead himself um, in terms of his approach, you know, it, was, it showed me that. And you remember I was very critical of him right out of the gate when he, his for opening press conference and he said, we're going to get real football players. Yeah. Um, I was taken aback by how negative tone that was and what a message to deliver to your team out of the gate as the new GM that I don't consider people real football players. So you're telling me that, uh, you know, everybody that the previous regime picked up, you know, that Danny Sheldon's not a real football player, or, you know, is Jordan Poyer not a real football player? Although Jordan wasn't still with us, but you get my point. Um, you know, I just, I, he turned me immediately um, from having a positive when they grabbed him to suddenly going, wait a minute, this guy, I, I don't like the way he shoots. Um, and, you know, like every Browns fan, always trying to give the benefit of the doubt as they move forward. Um, I, it was obvious to me that Dorsey forced the Haley hire onto Hugh Jackson uh, with the idea of looking to replace Hugh with Todd Haley. Um, and that went so sideways that they ended up having to fire both of them. Um, you look at the Season one of Baker Mayfield and, and Freddie Kitchens becoming the OC, um, you know that worked under Todd Haley's playbook with Ken Zampezi, uh really assisting Freddie. And I think you got into that offseason with ownership and you know their trust in De Podesta, and they went through the process of looking to hire. And my belief is, and, and I think I shared this with. Uh, off air mm -hmm. is that I believe prior to that season the Haslam's realized that they had a problem on their hands and they and, and they wanted to follow deep the depths of the and hire Stefanski. Uh -huh. And I believe what happened is Dorsey only one year in was still the you know for whatever reason I don't get it. this there's up just Browns fans puzzle me you know they're their love of John Dorsey because he wore a sweat shirt all the time and, you know, Air Dorsey's. Um, right. I just, it was bizarre to me, this sort of, sort of cult-like, uh, you know, 
guy, even though the moves I was seeing, getting rid of Seidler, uh, you know, gutting the line, you know, questionable decisions, I'm, you know, it was, it was like, why are, what is happening in the football operation? Um, and, you know, I was, I never liked Elliot Wolf. I don't, I, I, and I think I've expressed that to you as well. Every yeah. time I ever saw an interview with that guy, I never understood what all the affinity for him was for people claimed across the league. Um, he struck me as a not smart guy pretending to be a smart guy. Um, so I think it, you know, it all starts there. And I think we got into that moment. And I think Dorsey went to the Haslam's, slammed his fist on the table and said, I'm the GM. You put me in charge of this. I've only been out of the year. I want Freddie. He wanted Freddie because he wanted a guy he could control. He did not want another Andy Reid situation. And, um, wanted his guy, Freddie was going to be his toad, and you know, and John was going to basically fill that staff for Freddie, which is what happened. And so the Haslam's backed down. They had their popular GM who had one year under his belt. There had been progress. People in this town and he, he can't underestimate the, the fan pressure you know, that's out there. Right. That the Haslam suddenly found themselves in. Imagine how they would have looked at that moment after one year and sort of the, the back end of that season when things started to look like they were turning around, that the Haslam's, based on the power struggle internally, fired Dorsey and hired Kevin Stefanski. I mean, imagine how that would have just been an utter, utter train wreck yes. in terms of PR. I think they were boxed in. I think that they just didn't have a, a move when John was insisting on getting his hire. And I think the proof in that is, of all the moves they've made, the, the Haslam's, you know, for all the criticism we can all level at them, they've always stood up there front and center um, at the table and taken the questions, and, and whether it's a hire or a fire, been right there and dealt with the firing line. Right. When they hired Freddie, it was interesting to me at the time that the Haslam's were in the room sitting in the back along with their son-in-law, J.W. Johnson. And if you, if you look at old clips of that, almost emotionless on their faces while it was the Freddie and John show up front. I think that was a sign that they weren't on board and they were giving John what he wanted and they just they did not want to have to deal with the criticism again of a one-year blow-it-all-up start over. But I think they also trusted Dee Podesta and kept him around. And I think in that moment, um, Andrew Barry, who we knew the Haslam's were very fond of, he went to them and said, I've got to leave. I don't fit in what, what's happening, what's just happened. So he leaves, goes to Philadelphia. The Haslam's let John get his way. Freddie is the new coach. Freddie's a good man. He's a good family man. He, you know, We've all read the stories about things he's done in his life, charitable work and otherwise. Freddie's a good guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, he coached under many good coaches, but he was always a low-level position coach. And right. I don't think that, you know, I mean, you and I both know, in just in the work world, that there are people that are extremely disciplined at what they do, and then there are people who aren't. And I think Freddie is a good football guy, probably a good position coach, but I don't think he was, he clearly, I mean, this is not me, you know, sort of throwing some great knowledge on people at this point, but... He clearly wasn't ready for the big seat. Everything that's involved in the organizational end of being a head coach and how to 
enough attention uh, to it at his previous stops of other head coaches, or he's just personally not capable of it. And, and, I, and I tend towards the, the latter, and, and I said this at the time, but you remember the game going into Pittsburgh where they were still alive for the playoffs, and Freddie got caught at the theater wearing the shirt? Right. That was a faux pas. Right. Yeah, and you had, and he had just been, you know, lecturing his players on, don't be distractions, we're not talking about this, you know, let's be professional, yada, yada, yada. And then on Friday night, he's found with the teacher at Avenue Theater, um, and this becomes a big thing. Now, of course, Cleveland Brown fans, in their usual um, incorrect interpretation of things, said, oh, this is great, we love this guy. Another reason to love this guy, look, he hates Pittsburgh. Right. My reaction to that was, and I think we talked at the time, was, what the hell is our head coach doing at the movie theater on the Friday before a Steelers game, the Friday night before a Steelers game, when we're still alive for the playoff? Right. What is our head coach doing at the movies? He says, well, it was his birthday. I don't care. Do you think Bill Belichick would be at the movies? Do you think Shanahan would be at the movies on a Friday night before a critical division game late in the season with the playoffs on the line? No way. And I think that moment showed us who Freddie was. And he, and he just doesn't have it in his makeup. And it doesn't make him a bad guy. It's just not who he is. And, and I think that that was, that was the final moment, I think, for the Haslam's and they realized, okay, this is, this is not working. We're going to have to make changes at the end of the year. Um, so I think that the coaching staff that you and I both said, boy, this is a much improved coaching staff now under Freddie Kitchens. But it was, it was another shotgun marriage by John Dorsey. A bunch of guys who hadn't worked together before coming together to, you know, arrange by the GM. They all know that Freddie was there because of the GM. Freddie didn't bring these guys in. Dorsey did. So now you've got authority problems, right? Right out of the game. Right. Thank you. 
starting to see now in this offseason what an adult, professionally driven organization looks like. Well, there's a lot to unpack there in what you said. I'm going to address a couple of the things. As far as it goes with Elliot Wolf, we've talked about this off air. One benefit when you have Elliot Wolf is you at least have Ron Wolf in the room, a Hall of Fame uh, caliber GM, talent evaluator, whatever. So he's now not part of the mix anymore. But as far as Elliot goes, and I, I know this is this is almost a point of mirth on this show at this point, isn't it? About my affinity for bloodlines. I'm a big bloodlines guy. Granted, it's what made me have a blind spot for a period of time about Pat Shermer because his uncle is one of the great D coordinators in the history of the game. And, I think should be in the Hall of Fame on that basis. But uh, as far as Elliot Wolf goes, yeah, I don't, I don't know, and, and time will kind of play out on, on which of us is right about that as, as far as he goes. As far as a year ago, I mean, I noticed the same thing that you did, that the Haslam's weren't there. But see, I kind of look at it the other way because everybody was so hyped about John and Freddie, it wasn't about them. So I'm kind of taking it like, and not exactly that it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, because look, Freddie self-destructed on his own, to, to whatever extent. I'm, I'm not nearly as down on Dorsey as you are, although again, the, the, including Zeitler in the Beckham trade was disastrous. I realize that they started as standalone trades that got folded into one. The Zeitler thing, I was pretty hyped about getting Vernon, and I hoped that they could replace Zeitler. They couldn't. That's on John Dorsey. But a year ago, they were the hot commodities, not the Haslam's. So I kind of look at it like, yeah, maybe they got proven right about those two, but if you were hoping all along to be proven right, uh, then how much credit am I supposed to give you? Because, you know, if they couldn't at least plaster on smiles a year ago, uh, unlike you, I'm suspicious of the motives of the Haslam's and, and always will be based on their execrable track record, one of the worst track records of ownership in NFL history. So I'm not as quick to give them a, a, a pass on the way that things unfolded over the last year, because it sounds like uh, they kind of wanted to be proven right on a certain level because of their egos. Well, I think that if the ego was the driver, it would have been front and center if they were if they were happy with the way things worked out last year with the hirings and the way they happened. I, I just, I, I, they've always been, listen, after so many years of getting it wrong, if you really thought that the Dorsey-Freddy thing was the right move, how do you stay utterly silent in Like, you'd finally be, like, ready to take your victory lap. <laughs> and they, if you're, again, saying if you, it's all about ego with them, which, um, you know, I think there is. I, I mean, I don't care. You look, any billionaire guy has got an ego, right? We know Chick's got a massive ego. Right. Um, what, name an NFL owner that doesn't, right? I mean, there's probably a few that don't, but the, most of them do. Um, and uh, I think I just think if he had felt like that was they had nailed it, that he would be front and center. But I think that he had deep Destin in his ear saying, "This is the Petten hire all over again. You should have gone with Sean McDermott. This is you know you shouldn't have let you shouldn't let Andrew Berry leave out of frustration on this process." And I think he knew it. I think he knew that like this isn't great. And I think he. And I think that's why they were in the background. And they let John, I mean, to their credit, if you think that, let's say my theory is right, they don't think, then you're doing it, you are doing the right thing by stepping back and going, okay, I'm going to let John and Freddie do their thing. I mean, I'm just, what are you going to do, right? I mean, they, they were at least hands off for, for once. We let them 
assets and um, a lot of questionable decision making. Um, so uh, I don't think that that worked, and I think that they learned their lesson pretty quick on that. And I think for the first time, and again, you know, and we can talk about this, uh, that I've been an advocate of the various advanced higher long before it even it happened. And, um, I, I, so I'm a homer in that regard because for the first time in, since 1999, the team, the front office coaching team that I wanted hired finally got hired for the yeah. first time. So I, I have to, I own this now, Rick, right? You can hang this around my neck now. <laughs> well, this thing doesn't work because for the first time, I'm not like everybody else saying, well, we'll see how it works. Here's the pros and the cons. I like this about this guy and not this, you know, blah, 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 which we've done with every staff uh, back to 99. This time, I've been out front and advocating for it, timing the death for this, so finally getting what I wanted. So if this doesn't work, I'm going to eat a lot of crow. Well, look. Uh, over the years, right, there have been so many regimes. I think we've all been where you are at least once, right? Because there's been so many times that there have been changes. All of us have to have had at least one time where we got what we wanted. I'm not going to say that it was necessarily in case of the coach, but in terms of the GM, when they hired Phil Savage, that's who I wanted. I feel he was unfairly cast aside. I have always felt that. I'm not going to say things would have been much better over the last decade plus, but we'll never know. So I understand what it's like to homer for a scenario and to want to see it play out. And oh, by the way, last winning record was when Phil Savage was here, but that's neither here nor there, I guess. So hopefully it plays out the way you're talking about. I'm, I'm rooting for that, as is any Browns fan. But when I talk about the inexplicable from last year, the biggest thing to me, and like I said, the thing that historians will be puzzling over 100 years from now when they look back on the 2019 Browns, is you referenced it. The Todd Haley playbook of the previous year, Freddie made modifications. He did some things there as far as he was masterful in his selection of what was used, such that teams were copying the Browns around the league. That was happening late in the season, in the 2018 season, of where some of the stuff he was doing, some of the wishbone stuff and the experimentation, other teams were doing that. When's the last time anybody imitated anything from the Browns? To get in last year, you bring in Todd Monk and, okay, air raid precepts, whatever. We all assumed you're going to work that into the mix. Instead, they apparently threw the old playbook into a big bonfire and started from scratch, and that's one of the major reasons that they sucked. Why, oh why, oh why, oh why would anybody do that? You should work new ideas into what you have, incorporate it into a winning formula instead of tossing it aside. That, to me, is one of the biggest stories and one of the biggest overlooked stories of the 2019 season. That offense never should have been as shite as it was schematically. Well, you're 100% right about that. Um, and that comes, you know, that does come back to Freddie. Um, you know, uh, what's his face? You know, interestingly, before the season started, remember um, the old uh, uh, offensive line coach, uh, Bob? Wiley? Yeah, Bob Wiley was on a radio show, and they asked him about Freddie. And you remember, it was like two weeks before the season started. <laughs> yep. He basically just trashed Freddie. All Ken Zampese. Right. And that Freddie got all the credit, but it was Ken Zampese's designs. It was him. It was his game plans that were working. It was him working with Baker. Right. And we all said, shut up, fat man. You're just <laughs> Ken Zampese. You got fired. Blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what? Don't you look 
back on that interview now and say, oh, God, I think Bob Wiley was right. Yeah. Bob Wiley was probably, and he was being brutally honest. And, and again, we had a hire of Freddie who didn't have Ken Zampese or Todd Haley play, you know, throughout the Todd Haley playbook, didn't have Ken Zampese in his ear anymore, was now all on his own. Todd Munkin with a with a uh, with a different system that didn't quite fit, and Freddie's inexperience just was clear, and his desire to want to call the plays and not hand them over to Munkin. Um, and you know now we've subsequently learned that Munkin was basically, you know, they would design a game plan that Freddie wouldn't follow after the first two drives, the rest of the game, and players were running plays that they hadn't practiced why they were a mess. I mean, that's just pretty undisciplined, right? Like, that's just, you know, I mean, it's, it's first of all, it is inexplicable. What were you thinking, Freddie? Like, you know that Baker's best in 12, man. Why are you running so much 11, man? I mean, it was like, you know what he does well, let's go ahead and not do what he does well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't understand what that was. Um, but what I will tell you, and I'll bring this back to my previous point, why I wanted this regime. And you love bloodlines. Right. I love smart. Mm-hmm. I, and I have for a long, long time, and I, and I don't think I've ever, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but my belief has been for many, many years that we put way too much stock in these quote-unquote football guys. Okay. That we, that we all act like the public. Like, what these guys do is so hard, mysterious, complicated, that, boy, these, only these football coaches can figure out how to coach football. Mm-hmm. Now, most of these guys that I've seen through the years that coach football, you know, I don't think they can do much else, okay? I've never been one that believes that putting together a system, coaching schemes, uh, schematics and stuff, is all that, you know, doesn't requ- you know, doesn't require a ton of quote unquote genius. I mean there's this sort of there's this I think this problem in the NFL where they just think that they are, you know, we're we're the only ones in the world that can figure out how to do this. You know, right. this is like, you know, making a whole new microchip. Only we can you know, only meathead former linebacker figure out how to do this. Really? I, I just don't buy it. I, I don't buy it. And, and I guess you know I've said this through our draft reviews for many, many years. I put a lot of stock in the interviews and the intelligence of a player. Right. When I listen to interviews, and I, when I watch a player, and I, and I sort of dissect what they're saying, and I you know, sort of look at their thought process during like an interview and stuff, I, I, I glean a lot of it in terms of their intelligence. And, I, and I, more times than not, I've proven right about what kind of player they're going to be by dissecting, you know, the sort of intelligence and their communication. And, and that's, I don't mean that by, like, glamour, you know, per se or anything like that. It, but it's, it's more than that. And so I've never been one who's like, oh, bloodlines or, you know, he descends from a football guy of a football guy. He's great great at talks football. Um, which is why I like, and I've liked it since day one, the D Podesta hire, and, and many people don't, 
is another smart guy. I'm a believer in life. I don't care if you're, what kind of company you're running or, or whatever your business is. The more smart, analytical people in terms of their thought process that you have and you surround yourself with, I believe you're going to be more successful. Um, and I see that right now in these guys, which is why I've had you know, and, and I think that um, I think we're seeing that uh, starting to play out, um, and and why I, I'm, I'm just, why I'm just a huge advocate for some some in some ways sort of a non traditional uh, on this. Well, yeah, very interesting points and uh, defensible. I think uh, for the most part, I, I will say this on bloodlines. Uh, while I'm not a stand for him personally, as the kids say, Kyle Shanahan bloodlines. I mean, it does it does work. Sometimes there are definitely instances of that, of where it does kind of play out, of where when you've absorbed well, you something. You would say bloodline, but I would say Kyle Shannon is a really smart analytical guy. Okay, maybe we're both right. I, I think that's what it is. I don't think it's because his tax was a. I mean, he's in football because of his father. Right? Sure. He had opportunities. He had a life. You know, he was exposed to it and he pursued that. But I think Kyle Shanahan, had he been in some other business, had been on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. I, I think he would be supremely successful because he's disciplined, because he thinks, you know, three-dimensionally. Um, and I think that guys like that succeed in whatever the hell they choose to do. I don't think it's bloodline. I think it's that, you know, you've got a guy who's, who's brain is wider, right? And I think you see that the, some of these guys, these bloodline guys that don't work out mm-hmm. because the their father might have been a great coach, and you know, and we've all known, you know, in the private sector, lots of first-generation business guys who watch the second generation run a business in the ground. Right. Well, there's bloodline right there. Well, guess what? Yeah. So I, I think Shanahan is an example of, of what I'm saying, which is a supremely intelligent, disciplined, analytical person, and and I think that's why he's successful. Okay, interesting. The chicken or the egg uh, question there with him. What I want to go back to, I want to touch on something that you brought up because this is maybe one of the most troubling things about the Browns organization of the past and perhaps even the present because it's a lot of the same people in the building a year later uh, in terms of looking at this. If Freddie Kitchens was simply the sock puppet for Ken Zampezi, how did nobody in that building apparently know that except for Bob Wiley or care about that? Aside from Bob Wiley, with either either of which is hugely, hugely troubling. If this was the case, it's one thing we didn't know this, Chris. How the hell would we know this? How did the people inside the building either not know or not care that that was the case? I think there's a lot of people that probably... Well, first of all, I think in some of that stuff, you've got to be on the coaching staff. There's a lot of people that are in the Browns organization, front office, whatnot, that aren't in those meeting rooms, aren't in those private coaching staff, you know... Uh, Tets, they wouldn't have enough. They wouldn't do that. Okay. Um, so I think there's a lot of people in that building who just wouldn't know that. Um, I think that um, coaches would know that. I think that players would know that. And I think we've seen through the years that coaches and players, like in a lot of organizations, you know, there is a lot more. There is a lot more discipline on messaging than I think a lot of people always get credit for. I mean, we see it all the time with players. 
they'll say the right thing. They don't have to be coached by Bill, che- Bill Belichick to, to know what to say and not to say. These guys are so much more savvy than they've ever been in terms of towing the company line, that kind of thing. I think there were a lot of guys in there. And I think you also had a really young team, a lot of guys on that team that didn't know better. I would put Baker Mayfield in that category, right? Uh, right. Freddie was his buddy, right? He liked it. Freddie was his buddy. Dorsey was kind of like his buddy, you know? And, you know, I don't think, I don't think that Baker would know better. Um, I think there were other downstairs that wouldn't know better. I think that, um, I, and I just think that there's a certain level of omerta that goes on to this organization. I've seen that in, um, public organizations, you know, private companies, you know, politics, you know, you get into politics, you know, my line of work, and, you know, there's lots of public officials that all the other public officials know are, you know, that public official is literally the most worthless, worthless um, person out there. Right. But there's no merit to them, right? You right. cover, oh, they're for my party, I cover for them. I don't say anything. I I gotta say that's my least favorite form of journalism aside from clickbait journals. Now it can be told, Jason Lloyd in the Athletic. Now it can be told. I sort of got the cold fish type treatment from Bill Parcells before last season when I asked him about Freddie Kitchens being a head coach. Well, I think that would have been relevant to know at the time. But as far as that goes here, and being the good, well, and I even, you know, listen, I even understand from a member of the press. His livelihood is based on access, right? Yeah. You know, in August, he writes the article that says, basically intimates that Bill Parcells is like, give the thumbs down to Freddie. Right. Right? I mean, how's Jason going to do his job? Right? I mean, it's just, that's the problem. You know, if Bill doesn't say something explicitly like, boy, you know, I think, and it goes on the record and says, boy, you know, I think Freddie's one of the dumbest people I've ever, undisciplined people I've ever known. What the hell is he going to do? I mean, he, now he's just sort of burning a bridge, and now he's screwing up his ability to do his job. So some of that, I mean, we can be critical, but I understand the position some of these guys find themselves in, which is if someone won't go on the record and they won't speak, they'll only intimate, what are you going to do? I mean, you're kind of like, well, all right, I, now I know this, and I'm kind of watching it, but I, there's nothing actionable here on my part. Right. It's... Uh... Well, I will also say, too, being the good, loyal, and protective friend that I am, uh, I will not read anything specifically allegorical on the air. I mean, I am in my head, but not on the air about what you said about worthless protections in the Code of Omerta. <laughs> I'm sure you and I are thinking of some people in particular, but I'll just for once leave that in my head and not let it come out my <laughs> mouth, <laughs> which, 
which I so rarely do. That that shows uh, how tight I am with you that I would do that. But I will say, too, there, the moment that sort of encapsulated the season to me, in retrospect, better than anything else in, in terms of the lack of discipline and everything else, actually happened about five, six weeks before the season, right about the beginning of training camp. Uh, good friend, fellow FDH Lounge dignitary, Ron Glasnap, who works at Fox Sports Ohio, Every once in a while, he's able. I, I love when he can get the loge for the wrestling events at the queue and takes me along. But he got the loge for a baseball game. First time I was ever in there for a baseball game. And it was the night that Baker ran the old shotgun offense on the big screen there. And Ah, oh, yes. What a, what a moment. I was there. And I'm getting, I'm getting texts from lounge dignitaries Jason Jones in Colorado, Ben Chu in, Wash, in Oregon. I'm like, yeah, guys, I know, I'm here, I saw it. You know, they're te they're they're tweeting me the video, texting me the videos from Twitter. I'm like, I just watched it with my own two eyes on the big screen, and it was so funny. And it was that was the whole thing of like, yeah, that's our guy, yeah. And and you look back on it, and that's that's almost the entire season in a nutshell. The way we looked at it then versus the way we look at it now. That it sums up everything up better than I ever could uh, as far as a story about the season and what actually happened on the field. Well, I think that's a great segue for us to talk about Baker Mayfield and what happened last year. Mm -hmm. um, I don't look at it that way. Okay. I, I have no issue with Baker being Baker, although I would like Baker, you know, not to sound like Colin Coward on this, but I would like Baker to sort of, you know, dial it back when it comes to some of the you know, responding to tweets and criticizing members of the press. And you've got to get a thicker skin. Right. I mean, you've got to recognize that, listen, Patriot, you're the number one pick in the NFL, a Heisman Trophy winner. Guess what, buddy? You won. Right. I mean, like, you know, I mean, people could criticize you, but none of them are people who criticize you are ever going to be as successful in their lives as what you've already accomplished. Um, so at some point, you've got to realize, like, you've just got to stop with Stuff. Right. Um, and I would like to see a little bit more, you know, corporate Baker. Now that being said, I don't, I don't want Baker to not be Baker. I didn't have any problem with the, you know, shotgun beer at an Indians game in the summer to rile up the crowd, getting the people of Cleveland to love him. It's fine. At the time, all these quarterbacks were being filmed chugging beers at sporting events that summer, if you recall. Yeah. Um, it was sort of like the funny little thing. Even Tom Brady and blah blah. You know, everybody's like, "Well, good thing just a beer. That's why he's you know, through, you know, twenty interceptions." I was like, well, that's, you know, and, and I followed this kind of in the same way with the commercials. And they're like, "Well, all these commercials he had." But you don't realize he did that during the off season when he wasn't, you know, in training camp and all the rest of that stuff. They were all filmed. Um, it's not like he was leaving practice to go film commercials. Um, that said. Probably needed to put more time in uh, in the off season and getting ready. Um, I, I, you know, I don't buy into the whole Baker's fat whole right that people have been doing. But he did put on weight, um, and I think that that was probably by design on his part to try to bulk up a little bit, right? Because he is a pretty small guy, um, and I think this year we'll probably see a little bit leaner Baker than what we saw last year. So. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, I want Baker to be Baker, uh, and I love his charisma, I like his leadership on the field with that team, his, his teammates love him, um, I love his chip on his shoulder, you know, 
Cleveland. Um, even though I would have liked you, I would have drafted Sam Donald. Yes. In some ways, Baker's a better fit for this town. Maybe, right? yeah. I mean, this town has a, you know, chip on our shoulder about being criticized. I mean, boy, Cleveland, you talk about thin skin. I mean, whenever Cleveland is criticized at anything nationally, I mean, this town gets so, you know, uh, much like Baker. Right. Um, so I think Baker fits the town. Um, and I think we both agree that had Baker been three inches taller, he would have been the unanimous number one pick, period. Probably. Um, I, I think just, you know, the, the, the gradings and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the scouting and everything would have said to people, he was three inches taller. Um, now, that said, what happened last year with Baker? One, we've already discussed the Freddie problem in the offense. Right. They tried to do a lot of stuff that was not Baker's, not his strength. Right. Again, fit. Um, it's you know every you know, every quarterback, almost every quarterback is a system quarterback. Right. Period. I, yeah. I don't I don't care what the like he can play in anything. No, he can't. Right. Um, and you and I have discussed many times. It's important for a player to be drafted in a system that's different. Yes. In order then for them to be a, a successful professional. And they gotta get lucky in that regard. Um, so, you know, your your guy you love, Jared Goff, I mean he's a system quarterback. Right. Uh, Baker is a system quarterback. And here's what Baker it's clear that he's best in a twelve man play action based uh, offense. In the pros. Now he was fine and you know sort of the, the Oklahoma air raid system that they sort of ran. Um, but in the pros, his height and skill set lend itself to heavy 12-man um, and, uh, you know, that sort of that sort of structure. And in play action, we saw in his rookie season when he was in those formations and they ran a lot of play action. That's when he was most deadly. So we didn't do a lot of that last year. We took Baker out of his comfort zone, where he was learning a new offense for the third time in you know, three years. And he struggled. But I don't think that Baker is broken or that you know, all these national pundits that want to talk about how, you know, sort of suggest Baker's a bust. I mean, we saw his rookie season. Uh, we saw what he's capable of. And I think that's the important thing about what Stefanski is going to do um, this year is put Baker, you know, he's going to be the opposite of Freddie, which is put Baker in position in the system with with the weapons they have that fits the skill set of the quarterback. I think the other problem for Baker was, and I saw this right out of the gate in the Tennessee game, because John Dorsey got at the line and didn't, and didn't bring in quality linemen to replace didn't replace Seidler successfully, didn't get a good left tackle, stuck with his bad left tackle and, and Hubbard. You could tell right away. I mean, like, they, in a, after the first series against the Titans, Baker was not comfortable with his offensive line. Right. He was clearly did not trust them. And I think that that was the biggest problem last year more than anything. He never trusted those guys. And 
Baker at his size, I think it's clear beyond needing play, you know, play action and 12 man is his strength. He also needs, he's, he's not, you know, he's not, he's not Russell Wilson. Right. He's not going to succeed with garbage, you know, with a, with a can of tomatoes in front of him. Right. He needs, Baker can be, could be an all pro quarterback year after year, but you better put a good offensive line in front of him. Period. Agreed. And I, and I think that that's one of the great untold secrets of Tom Brady's career, that the Patriots, because of probably because of smart drafting and coaching, almost always had a really good line in front of Tom. And I think if Tom had had garbage in front of him, I think that a lot of the history of Tom Brady would probably be written differently. But he did you know, He always had good line play. Right. And I think Baker needs I think that that's something that this new regime understands right out of the gate. That at six feet tall or six one or whatever you want to claim he is, in his size and his skill set, he cannot have garbage in front of him. He has to have Pro Bowl or or you know high quality efficient offensive linemen that he trusts. And I think if you get that in front of him, the depth and the trust that he needs. And again, I was not as alarmed as a lot of people were about Baker last year because, again, I saw everything you saw. Understandable, happy feet because the line was shite. Uh, the play calling was awful, like you said, not going to his strengths, which, by the way, that's a recurring motif in the history of the new Browns. I go back to this as a guy who was a big Tim Couch enthusiast back in the day with that rhythm offense at Kentucky, only to see him get thrown into the seven-step drops here, which were just death for him. You have to have a quarterback and an offense that works for him. Isn't it ironic? We thought that Freddie was going to be the perfect person to do that for Baker, and he killed him in that way. And I don't have any stats in front of me, but approximately 107% of the interceptions he threw last year were wide receivers directly shoveling the ball right to DBs. Tell me that didn't get old, as you kept seeing that happen over a period of time. And then it would be, oh! There was a lot of that. Yeah. Baker throws another pick, like... Hey, idiot, did you just watch how that happened? Did you just see how it was tipped directly to the guy to where even my, my deceased grandmother could have come down with the ball? Like, come on. So that was just, there were a lot of extenuating circumstances, but he, again, he has to make the most of it this year of the new circumstances.